come up and share the message with us this week and just give him a big welcome as he comes up. All right, well, hey, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Man, I've enjoyed the, uh, the, all the hymns we've been doing here lately. I, as a young kid, I would kind of go to church with my mom. Uh, we, we would go to Mass, and we'd, I'd hear some of the hymns and things like that. And I just thought they were the most boring things in the world. It always had the da, da, da. That was it. That was it. There's never like any cool instruments or guitar. Or any, none of that stuff. And as a kid, you want to be entertained by music. And the, the coolest things about hymns is they have such a depth of theology. They have such a, a wellspring of God's truth. You see, most of my information about God when it came from songs was probably like, you know, something like Garth Brooks, you know, or country music. You know, Garth Brooks had that song, Unanswered Prayers. Y'all heard that one? Anybody hear that one? That's a good song. It's a good song. It has a lot of um, personal connection to me in, uh, in a funny way because I remember in college, I was just beginning to become a Christian. I was just beginning to... Um, test trusting God, which is a weird thing to say. You shouldn't say test, but almost saying, okay, God, I'm going to give this to you, you know, almost like dipping your water, you're talking about, like, is it safe? Is it safe for me? And the more and more I kept giving to God, the more and more I kept seeing a really good return. And so I, I was really confused in college with my future career. I went to Texas Tech to uh, study business, and I changed colleges. I was still at the university. I went from the College of Business to the College of um, Mass Communications. I switched my major. I was going to be in advertising, and I felt like this was a good thing. I prayed about it, and I was still kind of learning about God a little bit, and I had the chance to interview for the advertising team. It was this national competition, and our university had a top five team that would compete at this national level against other colleges around the country for this big ad campaign thing. Now, one of the hardest things about this was if you, if you, if you made the team, you had to give up your entire spring break. And for college students, that's a big deal, especially if they're not Christian. They tend to want to go party and do all those crazy things that college kids do over spring break. I wasn't super interested in that. Um, I was like, fine, I have no plans for a spring break. I don't mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply and see if I get it. What I didn't know is that the only people who made the advertising team were seniors and juniors. And I was a sophomore at the time. And so when I got a, a, a call back, an interview to come back to it, I was super excited. I was like, hey, this is a big deal. And people were like, yo... Only seniors and juniors are on that team. There's no way you get it. And I was like, well, you don't know my God. You know, like, like I'm a Christian now. Like, I got this cheat code. Like, he's going to take care of me. I'm going to get this. And uh, I go to the interview with the, the teacher and, um, or the professor, and she's, like, a head, she's the head of the advertising department. She's, like, this advertising genius. And I have, like, my computer to do my cool little presentation to show off all of my skills, and my computer just crashes. But that's okay. I had a backup plan. I had a little tablet thing, but for some reason it wasn't charged, so that went wrong. But I had another backup plan because I'm, I'm crazy like this. I took out my textbook, and I was like, yo, let me show you some, some things that I can do. And all my bookmarks were just gone. or I, I, my brain, I couldn't find it. I was like, and I was just, maybe I was panicking. And I was like, everything is going wrong. And she's just staring at me like, you know, is this kid serious? And, um, but I tried talking with her and share stuff, and I thought, I thought I kind of saved it a little bit. I was like, I'm not going to get it. And so a week or two later, I get the email that says, hey, thank you for trying. You were not selected, blah, blah, blah. And I was crushed because I'm, I'm like 20 years old or 19 years old at this point, and um, I was just like, God, what are you doing? 
Like, I asked for this. I changed my whole life for this. I thought you had me. I thought things were going to be okay. Now, what am I supposed to do? I'm obviously not very good at this. If I can't make this team, I was a very dramatic person. And I was so confused. Meanwhile, at that same time, what I didn't know is that God was kind of paving a whole different story for me, one I didn't quite see. And I needed that change, I needed that rejection to kind of turn the boat for me. See, I just started going back to church or I said going back to, I never really went. It was like the first time going to church. And I got involved in the college ministry. And one thing they had going on was this mission trip that they would do. Um, and it was over spring break. And I was like, well, I got nothing to do anyway. I didn't make the advertising team. I'll just sign up for that. Signing up for that mission team led me to meet two very, very important people. One of them is my wife. Um, I met Marianne a few days before I left on that trip and got to talk to her more and more, and she would disciple me. She was the first person who taught me how to read the Bible and that I could learn things about God from this. The other one is I met the college pastor. He actually would hire me to work for him for a little while. And it was this crazy thing of how God worked something really, really good out of a situation that I was just so confused about. And I would actually meet that college professor uh, a couple years later, about three years later, because her kid was a fourth grader, and I was the preteen ministry coordinator. I, I, I felt called to ministry. I was working in the church. And she's like, hey, Scott, I remember you. I was like, yeah, I remember you too. <laughs> and she told me the craziest thing. <clears throat> I, was, I was like, she's like, I remember you so much because <clears throat> she's like, as you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I, I try to integrate that into everything I do. And in my job, I pray over every one of the applicants who applies to, to our team. And I was really impressed with your application, which is why I brought you in. I typically don't bring in sophomores. She's like, your interview, I thought you were incredibly witty and fast on your feet. You adapted really well. I would have loved to put you on the team. <clears throat> but when I prayed, I felt like God was telling me no and telling me not to pick you. And so I didn't. And I was like, well, thank you so much. Because I had no idea what God had planned for me. And it was far beyond what I could have ever possibly imagined. And if I would have just turned away, given up, or just given into despair or hope because things didn't work out the way that I thought they would in my mind, I would have totally missed out on maybe getting to be here, maybe getting to have that family and get to know each one of those, those girls. This morning, we're going to go through something that I think is really, really sad. It's super easy because it's just ink on a page, but like Stephen was someone's son. Stephen may have been someone's brother. Stephen was probably someone's best friend, and he was mercilessly murdered, stoned to death. And it's a sad thing. And at a time when the church had such momentum, remember, think back to Acts 4, when everyone shared everything in common and no one had any wants, and they had favor with the community, and now all of a sudden they're dragging someone out and hitting them to death with stones? Something had shifted in the church, and it was heavy. And it was hard. And people had the chance to think, man, God really, uh, really missed it this time. Why wouldn't he save Stephen? Why would he let this happen? So we've got to be patient. God only does things that are good. When I was trying to work on this message, I... <clears throat> I felt like God was really just giving me one thing to say, and I wish it was something that was like really, really cool or catchy. But the main point, this whole thing we're going to try to come back to this morning, is that the providence of God always accomplishes his purpose. 
the providence of God accomplishes his purpose. Providence is a fancy Christian word, one that isn't even in the Bible. And so the word can, we can call it something else if you want, but the word is symbolic of a reality. We see a pattern throughout the texts, throughout scripture of God working in the lives of his people, in the lives of his church. Providence, if you break it down in the Latin word, it gets kind of vague, but it has this kind of sense of seeing something and, and doing something about it. In English, we have this idiom, oh, hey, see to it that you clean your room. Almost as though God sees the existence of a need and he, he works toward it for our good. God's providence, God's sovereignty are actually a little bit different. God's sovereignty is that he is entitled, he has the right and the authority to change things to his will. God's providence comes with a promise that he is actively working for us, for his glory. The more his glory increases, we celebrate because we get to see more goodness about God that we can fall in love with. God's providence will always accomplish his purpose. And that's a key point of what we need to see in Stephen's um, last breaths with us. So we're going to go ahead and dive into the scripture now. We should be in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. should pop up behind me as well. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So things aren't looking great in Acts chapter 7 and 8. God provides faith. For God to continue working providentially, we'll see this pattern in the lives of people he uses. He provides the faith necessary. Stephen, in the very beginning, it says he is full of the Holy Spirit. 
working in the strength of the Holy Spirit, not his own, but the strength of God, the Holy Spirit in his life, he is able to say, God, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. That is supernatural. That's not something we do as humans asking for forgiveness for the very people attempting to murder us. And he's praying for them. Actually, before I continue, let me just unpack a few things in that verse. When he looked into heaven and saw the glory of God, something incredible is happening here. Stephen is getting a glimpse to view the glories of heaven. He's still in court at this point. He's still in the Sanhedrin where everyone is accusing him and he's standing trial. He looks up almost as though in some miraculous way that I can't fully explain or even understand. He's able to see through the ceiling, see through the infinity of wherever the sky, wherever this heaven might exist. And he sees God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand. I, I love the, the emphasis some, I've heard some pastors put on the fact that Jesus wasn't seated but that he was standing as though, um, as though it was an expression of his great concern or that he was even welcoming him in. Like, hey, I got you, Stephen. But something that's even crazier here is that Stephen says, Jesus is standing with God at the right hand. The very same thing, the Sanhedrin, the same thing that these men heard from Jesus himself when he said, I am the son of man, I will stand at the right hand, I'll be seated at the right hand of the throne. And they killed him for it. And now he's saying, guess what? Remember that? When he killed that guy? I'm seeing him right now. It would have freaked them out. The very thing that Jesus prophesied would come to pass, there's another man standing before them and saying, I can see him. He's also ascribing glory to Jesus whom they killed. He said he was just a, li a liar. And now this would make them even more upset. The boldness and the faithfulness of Stephen to not shy away and say, oh, I see someone standing next to God. No, he said Jesus. Amen. The faith to stand there knowing what could happen. I like to think he, he's not a dummy. I'm sure he recognized he was upsetting people. When it says that they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, you see, they would have plugged their ears, the Sanhedrin, so they wouldn't listen for fear they might be accused of listening to heresy. And so they covered their ears and they rushed at him. And when you break down that word, rushed, it's everything you can imagine. It's this unruly, wild, animalistic type behavior that says, let's just grab him. I'm so out of control of myself. I'm just so furious. And they grabbed him and took him out of the city so they could stone him. And in the way it's described, they didn't follow any of the laws. There is a law for the execution by stoning and this ain't it. I had always thought that when people got stoned in the Bible, it was just, you know, everyone's playing baseball with rocks kind of thing. Like, oh, it's kind of, it's kind of messed up. The real law was they would push you off of a cliff, 10 feet high, a minimum, and then the first witness would drop a large stone directly onto you to kill you, to crush you. And then if that didn't kill you, the second witness would do it. And the fact that Stephen is still praying for them, still talking while, while being actively stoned, tells us this wasn't done the legal way. People were just in a fury, mad rage, chucking rocks at him. They, had, they didn't even do this by their own laws. And Stephen, in some incredible supernatural way, has the discipline to say, Lord, do not hold this against them. They laid down their clothes, possibly so they could throw rocks easier. 
right before the feet of Paul, we don't, or Saul, we don't know if Saul took part in any of it, if he grabbed a stone himself, but we know that he was approving of it. He was like, good, this is the way it should be. We shouldn't have someone teaching about this false man saying he can see him next to God. God provides faith. We heard Ephesians 2.8 earlier. I want to read it one more time. There's a really cool thing about that verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The fact that you're even a Christian this morning is because of a gift that was given to you. God gives faith. God gives us faith. It is so provisional, his providence, that he would see that you would come to know him. How did he accomplish that? By giving you faith and eyes to see, ears to hear. God has actively worked in your life to bring you to this moment where you could know him. And he made sure it would be possible by giving you that gift of faith. And there's a pattern of this again. We don't see it just there. But again, we look at um, Abraham in um, Romans 4. They're talking through the whole concept of justification. And in 4.1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if his act of belief was a work, then he could brag about it, right? But the scripture is very clear. There's nothing that he did. Otherwise, he could boast about it. So his belief in God that's counted as righteousness must be a gift. His ability to know and say, this is the true God who's calling me to go to a place that I don't know is a gift from God. God from the very beginning, Abraham being the father of our faith, right? God gifted him with the ability to believe. And it continues again. If you look at so many stories in the Bible, we have Esther, <coughs> a young girl who was tasked with approaching the king, where if he didn't lay down his scepter, she would be killed. She did this in effort to save her people who were about to be persecuted. This law would go out into the land. All of the Jews were to be killed. And she had been the queen at this time. And she sought God in prayer and fasting and asked people to pray for her. She says, if I die, I die. It's this incredible, bold moment in Scripture. If you haven't read the story, there's so much more to it than I'm explaining right now. But I, I truly believe that God blessed her through her time of prayer with faith to walk down and say, I surrender my life to God. Whatever happens to me, it's going to happen. But I have faith that God's going to make that. This is going to work. This is, this, is a good, this is a good decision to make to save my people. Again, you have more people. Um, you have Ruth who... Um, said, your God will be my God to Naomi. She left all of her people. She was a Moabitess. She left her entire family, her land, everything to stay with her mother-in-law and live in a cave in complete squalor. How she was able to say, your God will be my God, I imagine there must have been a gift of faith. And then a really, really cool one, one that we're perhaps we're even more familiar with is Matthew 16. In verse 16, Jesus says, or 15, Jesus says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. God gives faith. 
in the middle of these storms, in the middle of standing trial, we can look to God to be the giver and the source of our strength. When the ground feels like it's falling out beneath us, when we feel like we're standing there waiting on death row, where does our help come from? We look to the hills. God is the giver of our faith. If you're lacking, if you're shaking, if you're wavering, if you're wondering, pray to God for the faith to, to persevere, to continue. It was successful for every one of these people. God gives faith. In making his providence accomplished, God also provides a way. So God provides faith. God provides a way. I mean, I really, really, <laughs> I just thought a really obvious one would be kind of Moses, right? And the, the Egyptian army's pressing on one side, the massive Red Sea, impassable on the other. So much so was the faith having weakened by the Hebrew people. They said, we should just go back. It would be better that we died in Egypt. Were there not enough graves there, Moses? Like being sarcastic even. God provided a way. Something no one had ever seen before. Something you couldn't even imagine because you couldn't make it, you couldn't even make it up. Water doesn't just part. Ground doesn't just dry. God provides a way. This is something that's really, really cool to me. There's a really beautiful pattern in Stephen's speech that all comes together in these last few verses. This amazing parallel track, almost where like if I was God, I would just be cracking up of like, now watch this, watch this part, you know, like you know something good's coming. It's right here in chapter eight. If I can find it, here we go. Verse one. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Here it comes. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Why is that a big deal? All of Christianity was exploding in Jerusalem. Thousands getting saved, right? Peter preached a message and 3,000 people were added to the church that day. But now, because of this tragedy and this persecution that was supposed to shut down the church, that was supposed to break up the church, destroy it, erode it from the bottom out, mobilized the church. They were spread everywhere. You know the worst thing to do to get rid of dandelions is you kick them and blow them all over the place? That's not how you get rid of dandelions. That's how you spread them all over your whole yard. There's a quote that says, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. They just spread us everywhere. The diaspora is the fancy word for it. All of a sudden, Christians were going to Samaria and new towns and new cities, and they were still Christian. God provided faith. And now all of a sudden, this religion wasn't just centralized in Jerusalem. It was spreading all over the region. And again, we see the next one. Saul approved of his execution. <coughs> Excuse me. How crazy is it that Saul happened to be there that day. And it's written in the text. 
almost as if to prove the mightiness of God over even the mightiness of man or the government or whatever circumstance might be happening, Paul ravaged the church with full authority, with full support, with efficacy. He was taking men and women, it didn't matter who, indiscriminately arresting them. And this probably wasn't just a slap on the wrist kind of thing. These people may have been executed as well. And God sees fit to say, look at this enemy of the church. Acts was written for the people of God, shoot, I don't know how many years later after it happened. Forgive me for that. But imagine, well, we don't have to imagine. It's us right now. In 2023, we're reading about the power of God over a circumstance that took place. Saul, who we know as Paul, the greatest irony, wrote all this stuff. As if God's like, you think you have the strongest person attacking my church? Well, he's about to be on my side. Not only does it prove to the people of God that he can use anyone, which is a really cool thing, all can come to Jesus, but it shows the power and might of God that the darkest, most vilest, evilest attack on the church, God can turn it around and use it to write his dang Bible. Like, if that ain't crazy, it blows my mind that we get to see Saul providentially placed there. And I have to wonder, this isn't in the text. This is just Scott. Was he listening? Like, was Saul listening to, um, to Stephen? Was he impacted in some way that may have softened his heart? You see, the amount of people who tried to tell me about Jesus and how little my life changed on the outside is probably discouraging to hear. The amount of people who made a clear gospel presentation to me, and I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep doing it my way, though. <laughs> they must have felt like they were just shooting arrows into the sky, or maybe they knew. Maybe they knew that God's providence will always accomplish its purpose, that God's word will never return void, but will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. Maybe they knew that one day God would say, Scott, you're done running. You're coming home. You're going to know me. I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to open your eyes. Saul's eyes were open too. Maybe Stephen had an impact on him there as well. You see, Stephen had such a parallel with Jesus, especially in the end of his life. He was brought to trial, accused of false things. Falsely accused, so was Jesus. He had an illegal execution. They didn't even follow their own rules of law. They just went crazy and had him killed. Jesus was a mockery of a child. When he was giving up his last breath, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's a cool shift there too from God, from Jesus to Father and Stephen to Lord Jesus. When Jesus had died, devout men, Nicodemus, and I can't remember the other guy, Joseph, took his body to have him buried. Criminals were not supposed to be buried in Judaic law. 
They should just be left to rot. They don't get treated properly. Jesus was buried. He was given a temple, a tomb. Stephen was also buried. Jesus is the way. God provides a way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I love the parallel that Stephen represents for us to see that, to see this act of faith, this boldness, this surrender, this humility, this trust, that even what's happening right now, God is capable of using. You see, I don't know if Stephen caught this. I have the luxury of getting to read this over and over and and take time to think. But in Stephen's death was the entire fulfillment of his speech of his sermon, of his message. You see, he had been speaking against the, um, the Pharisaic rule who had killed all of the prophets of God. They said, hey, you, you kept choosing the wrong things and then you would kill the messengers of God who God sent to t- tell you the truth and they killed Jesus. That was, his big acclaim, that was his big argument. And then they would kill Stephen, another messenger of God that we see historically, like there they go again. There is the failure of, of man once more. It exposes our need again for Jesus, right? He spoke against the Sanhedrin for wrongfully killing Jesus. And before he died, he said, I see him, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, declaring the truth and the validity of his message. Further, he spoke against the um, exclusive nature of worship at the temple. He said, you think that worship can only happen in these walls? And a couple of weeks ago, I had to preach about this. He was, Stephen was pushing for this decentralization that all could come to Jesus. It wasn't just in Jerusalem. It wasn't just in the temple. You can't put God in a little box. But he was everywhere. Jesus tore the curtain, tore the veil from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was everywhere. All could come to God. And now, what do we see? They were all scattered about the land. All of a sudden, they sent the Christians out. They spread them out everywhere. The fulfillment of his entire speech. I love the simplicity of God's truth. God provides faith. God provides a way. God's purpose will be accomplished. We look at Joseph's life, who... Stephen also referenced. Up and down, you know, he's the favorite of his dad. His brothers try to have him killed. They sell him into slavery. He rises up the ranks um, in Potiphar's house. He's ruling over the slaves. He's still a slave, but he's got some authority. His wife, Potiphar's wife, accuses him of, you know, sexual assault, basically. He loses everything, gets thrown into prison. In prison, he rises up the ranks again, gets a little more authority, has some more responsibility. He meets these two guys who are going to, one of them promises, hey, I'll tell the Pharaoh about you. I know you were wrongly in prison. I'll get you out. He's got some hope again. That guy forgets. You know, for us, it's just the turn of a page. And we see that, you know, Joseph moves out. He gets out of jail. But for Joseph, usually you die in prison. Eventually, the Pharaoh hears about this guy who can interpret dreams. Joseph is brought back out. The people of God experienced this horrible famine in the land, but God had revealed this dream to Joseph so that the people of God could get food in Egypt and all of his brothers come back and there's this reconciliation. And at the end of his life, we get one of my favorite um, verses in the Bible. 
his brothers were terrified that he was going to be mad at them. And Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And this is, uh, I think, 51, or 50, verse 20 here. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. No matter the circumstance, no matter the, the season, God's providence will accomplish its purpose. Our responsibility, like Stephen, is to keep our eyes on Christ, to look to the heavens and say, I see Jesus. I'm going to shut out everything else. I have no idea how you could have stones thrown at you. And he sees up to Jesus and he's praying. He was so single-minded, so tunnel-vision focused on Christ. Nothing else mattered. You see, I've, I've told so many people before, when you're a Christian, I don't think Satan has to, has to get you to, to give up Christ. I don't think he's got to get you to, to quit Christianity. That's a really dramatic thing. People are like, oh, Satan's trying to, trying to come after me. He can be a lot more subtle than that. He just needs to distract you. He just needs to pick at your emotions, pick at your preferences, pick at your insecurities, your pride, your reputation, whatever that thing is you're holding from God that you want to give to him, he's going to, he's going to pick at that. And whatever takes your eyes off of Christ, whatever gets you to just forget for a moment the faithfulness of God, that what you intended for evil, God intended for good and for the saving of many. Whatever can distract you, that's all he's got to do. So church, be encouraged. Stephen was able to do it. How? Because he's better than us? No, because he was full of the Holy Spirit. You, Christian, this morning are full of the Holy Spirit. There is a small condition there. If you have any unconfessed sin, repent of it. Do not injure your access to the Spirit of God and His power by hiding anything in your heart. Repent, forgive that person, move on. Where are you? And keep your eyes on Christ. Because even in the darkest moment of the church, historically, by Acts chapter 7, that was the worst thing that had happened. It got a little crazier. But in Acts chapter 7, for those Christians, they thought, this has got to be the worst thing. Our boy Stephen just got murdered, and God did nothing. No, 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 no. God did a whole lot of something. We're here today as Christians because of the faithfulness of so many men and women before us. Last thing I want to say, there's this quote. I don't know where it came from. It says, blessed is the man who plants trees under whose shade he will never sit. So many of us are enduring are persevering, are fighting, are sacrificing. You're planting trees, legacies of faith. You're planting trees for grandchildren, for future generations. Things you may never get to experience. You see, I don't know if Stephen ever would have imagined this, but his faithfulness to God, his faithfulness in that moment, planted so many trees for so many people. Benefits he never got to receive. He didn't get to see Philip 
go preach to the Ethiopian on the side of the road and baptize him for that guy to go take the, take the word of God all over the place. He didn't get to see Saul totally get transformed. I bet he was cracking up when he walked into heaven. Like, bro, hey, no hard feelings, what's up? You know, I have no idea what that conversation was like. But can you imagine with a surprise? Woo, I bet it was great. You must plant trees under whose shade you may never sit. Our time is limited. Our dreams should go far beyond just right now. I don't have any grandkids, but I, I kind of wonder what that's like. The sacrifices are worth it, even if you don't see it. The woman who first preached the gospel to me, I don't think she's alive anymore. And she doesn't get to know the, um, the joy I have in my family and the worship I get to give right now to God. And she did it anyway. She shared the gospel with me anyway. You're going to minister to people and have an impact in your city, in your community, in the lives of your loved ones in ways that you may never get to experience. You may never get the blessings from it. Are you willing to do it? I hope so, because it's going to be so beautiful. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for Stephen and his story. Thank you for being a God who's not afraid to show us the hardships of life. God, just talking with you right now, that, that's not how I would have wrote it. If I was writing this book, I wouldn't have written it that way. But somehow, God, you are infinitely greater than me. Your ways above my ways. So God, it makes sense that I'm not going to understand. It makes sense that we would understand. Please forgive us for that. God, give us faith to keep our eyes on you when there might be a hurricane around us. Give us faith when we're pouring into the people that we love, recognizing we may never get to see the fruit, but we do it out of the overflow of our love for you. God, bless our ministries that you've called us to so that we may magnify your glory. Heal the woundedness within us so that we can take our eyes up to the heavens and say, there you are, Jesus, standing. Not because we've earned it, but because you are that good. Show us, Father, that goodness that we may persevere and take the next step and plant another tree and another and another. God, be glorified by our sacrifice and remind us forever that your providence always accomplishes its purpose. Amen.